Changing the story around pain. This is the Modern Pain Podcast, helping to improve the understanding and treatment of pain across the world through education, advice from experts in the field, personal stories from those living well with pain, and more. A modern approach to pain treatment, management, and education, while helping to bring the patient voice back to healthcare. This is the Modern Pain Podcast. Here's your host, Dr. Mark Cardula. What is going on, everybody? It is Mark Cardula, lead faculty and CEO here at Modern Pain Care, where we make you the complete clinician. Coming at you with another episode of the Modern Pain Podcast, where today we're going to talk about a near and dear topic, because I get sometimes accused of being a manual therapy hater, even though I went through a fellowship and did all the manual therapy hoop jumping. Um, we're going to talk about the lumbar manipulation CPR, because it's been one of those topics that I've had definitely an evolution of my views on this CPR as I've been introduced to them over time. Again, I, I've been fortunate enough to know some of the folks that were involved in some of those studies, and I think all of the intentions were amazingly good and continue to be good around some of that, but maybe some weaknesses, and maybe it didn't really, you know, come out the way we thought. You know, uh, you know kudos to those who tried to, to put it together, something that would give us some, you know, major shift of how we're, I think what it did do, and we'll talk about it, is it made manipulation less of a scary thing to incorporate into our practice as physios. Some of us were doing manipulation quite a bit, but others maybe not as much. Um, so there may be some benefits of it, and uh, I know others think of manipulation is the devil, but whatever, but we'll talk into detail about it this week of the lumbar manipulation CPR, because it's one thing that uh, I think continues to get hammered on the OCS exam um, and DPT programs, and I think there's definitely some nuance to the discussion to be had, which we're about to have with our co-host, Jared Hall. How are you doing, man? I'm doing good. Man, I'm uh, I'm actually really excited to talk about this particular episode because it's it's been on my mind for a long time, and, and I've talked to individual people about it uh, a lot. Uh, because, I, you know, as you know, I teach in a PT program and I run uh, or help run an OCS prep program. So these clinical prediction rules and these treatment based classification systems and all this sort of stuff, they come up a lot because they uh, are very, you know, rigid and outlined. So they're really easy to write test questions over. Uh, and when you write test questions over something, students, test takers start to think that, well, this is exactly, you know, the best thing since sliced bread because you're getting a million uh, questions over it because it's really easy to, to, to write questions on. So then people start algorithmic, algorithmically applying uh, these things to every patient that walks through the door as a determining factor on whether or not, you know, to do a lumbar manipulation in this particular uh, example. And I think that there's some, you know, you mentioned the people who created the researchers who did the hard work, really, really tough work. Like, let's not, let's not, you know, undercut how difficult it is to do these studies and went through the process of getting it published. Uh, and they had fantastic uh, intentions because they're trying to reduce massive variability and non-evidence-based practice in, in our profession. So kudos to them for that. We absolutely need that. But you're right, there, there are some issues with that that have reared their head when, when you really take a deep dive into what those clinical prediction rules look like and especially uh, treatment-focused clinical prediction rules in general. Uh, so uh, what's, your, what's your experience with the whole uh, you know evolution of lumbar manipulation and clinical prediction rules and, and that sort of stuff, Mark? 
Well, you know, those of you who've listened to anything, you've heard probably my journey of like I had this existential crisis in the profession where I just could not convince my guru hands were ever going to get to detect millimeters. And then that those friggin' millimeters made any sense that it was going to explain the complexity that I was seeing in the clinic. It just, it just made no intuitive sense to me that I couldn't continue on that rabbit hole. So I was ready to quit. And then, uh, got introduced by some colleagues like, Hey, there's some research coming out. There's some more kind of more clinical guidelines that are going to help. And I think if you jump into this fellowship, which was evidence emotions fellowship, still eternally grateful for that fellowship. It really has leveled up a lot of my clinical reasoning and critical thinking and all that different things. But, um, it was very much founded based on the treatment based classification symptom or system. And a lot of the CPR folks that were writing these CPRs were part of the faculty in evidence emotions. So I definitely, had this thought, oh man, now I have the solution. Now I have, you know, manipulation is no longer a fuzzy when I got this black and white way of determining who gets manipulation or not. And I, this, I, again, black and white, that's probably a little bit, you know, a little bit extreme, but I mean, it does tend to risk yourself getting into a black and white clinician centered way of practicing. Um, and then, so it, it, it became like, hey, uh, we got these factors that don't, you know, manip. We did. So let's talk about the factors before I get into too far. Pain lasting less than 16 days. No symptoms distal than the FABQ score less than 19. Internal rotation of the hip uh, greater than 35 degrees for at least one hip. And then hypomobility at least one level in the lumbar spine. What, uh, you know, obviously there's some subjectivity into that a little bit. But, um, and then Julie Fritz came along, and I think she did it in a more of a primary care setting where they, she found that if you just strip it down to pain less than 16 days and pain note that doesn't go distal knee, folks tend to uh, respond to that. So that became kind of the deciding factor a lot of, for a lot of folks to, to enter, enter in manipulation into the equation and definitely was a biased approach uh, to, for me because I just you know then wanted to manipulate a lot of people because although there's not a lot of folks that I was seeing in certain settings at less than 16 days I've worked in persistent pain settings where that 16 days was long ago. Um, but there were definitely times where, you know, you'd occasionally see those folks and um, those, you know, it was thought, okay, manipulation is a solution. But then as research has come out, it shows that it just manipulation is one, or that CPR is one way to identify people that are going to respond to multitude of interventions and different things. There's been some studies, but yeah, my, my evolution on it then came to like, gosh, I'll, as the research has shown that it's not really making that you should be doing any, you know, there's a lot of choices of interventions. Again, a lot of what I think people get all sad about how there's no, you know, amazing Kool-Aid intervention that I can jump on and fix all my patients. To me, that's what makes clinic fun. That's what makes things going in where you qualify the intervention, whatever it may be that a CPR gave you or whatever, doesn't mean diddly squat if it doesn't fit that person that day in front of you. And that's to me what should be priority, not like I'm going to shoehorn these patients into a CPR and they're going to by golly get manipulation. If you create a scenario and the patient and it's a shared narrative and a shared agreement that that's a good way to go about uh, treatment that day, fine. Uh, and I still manipulate. I don't do much manipulation. Uh, the lumbar spine, I probably manipulate more uh, cer or cervical and thoracic. Um, just tend to do find more success going repeated motion patient self-loading strategies not to say again I've manipulated a few people this week in the lumbar spine um, but uh, we, we can talk about some of the des decision making on that but again I think it just it, it, it the research has really shown that these kind of CPRs aren't really well suited to help us as much as we thought they would clinically and they haven't given us the the, the panacea or in utopian clinical life that uh, we can really just use them to, to determine what patients should be getting. And 
you, you mentioned this treatment-based classification system. It's a good way to algorithmically think and give yourself some thoughts, but man, it, 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 humans don't fit algorithms, man, never will. So you need to be able to fit that T TBC, or maybe you do MDT, or maybe you do who knows what. I know Maitland has maybe a different way of reasoning, that it needs to qualify the person in front of you. And that's where, if anything I've learned about CPRs, is it just one example of how you can't shoehorn people into population statistics, that you need to bring population statistics and see if it fits in the N equals one in front of you. And um, to me, that's that's been, the, I guess, the biggest where I've ended up on the back end. Like, don't use it. I, I can't really say I, th I think about it yet, but it's, and it's a thought of maybe, and that's about as much as I go with, it's never a like, hey, this is the decision because this, no pain below the knee and pain less than 16 days. And I've seen some of this craziness where people say, well, then you're doing harm to your patients because numbers needed to harm because you're not doing it. You're doing your patients a disservice. Come on with that. Come on with, you know, that to me is just crud. That's just bad, you know, ways to start talking about it. That's to me marketing. That's saying, hey, I teach it. Therefore, you sh if you're not doing it, you're doing your patients a disservice. Ridiculous to me. That I'm, and I get pissed off, faint, frankly, because that to me is clinician-centered selfish care. That's not patient-centered care. And there's no data to say that we should be absolutely mani If manipulation is your desired way to go about get change in the clinic, fine. Just get over it and move patients off plinths. If it's mobilization, fine. Get over it. Get people off plinths. If you like the needle, get over it. Get people off plinths. I don't really get excited about what latest intervention. I'm, I'm getting on the soapbox and I knew I tried to prevent it from happening with this episode, but take me <laughs> off of it, Jared. Where are you at with the whole CPR and where you've kind of evolved with it over time? Okay, so I think, I think what would provide some value uh, would be spending a little bit of time talking about uh, how CPRs are um, developed and then maybe talking about the individual components of the CPR and, and we could give a little bit more explanatory depth to uh, why we have these feelings, right? So I, I'm going to provide a rough overview that is overly simplified on how this CPR was developed. So you take a cohort of patients and this is as many patients as you can get to, to achieve the appropriate research power, right? So you want to measure everything on these people. So every person that comes through the door that qualifies for your study and that you do a manipulation for, you measure all of their ranges of motion. You measure all of their strength. You measure all of their symptoms. You measure all of their uh, their history and how long it's been going on. You do multiple different questionnaires. You make data points out of everything. And then you apply your treatment and you come back at the end of the study and you look at who got better and then you do this, it's called a derivation study, right? Where you're looking for all of the factors that seemed to be in common between the people who got better. So that's what happened with these particular factors. Out of the people who got the most better or consistently got better, we saw that their pain was on average less than 16 days. We saw that their FABQ, I think it's work subscale, was less than 19. We saw that their hip internal rotation was at least 35 degrees on one side for, for some reason or another. We saw that, you know, they had stiffness at the lumbar spine with, with PA mobilization, and we saw that they didn't have pain below the knee. So these five factors showed to be common uh, between the patients who got better. So kind of what I call this or, or what I liken this to 
is equivalent to the Texas sharpshooter fallacy. If you're not familiar with what the Texas sharpshooter fallacy is, it's some guy pulls out his gun and he shoots the, the side of a barn a bunch of times and he walks up to the barn and he finds the, the, the five holes that are closest together and he draws the bullseye around that afterwards to show that he has hit the bullseye with all of his, all of his shot, shots. He's on target, right? But really he just threw a bunch of crap against the wall and went afterwards and drew a circle around it and said, I have the answer, right? I hit the bullseye. So I think that it's a little bit of a post hoc way of thinking about it. And you get some kind of interesting components that don't necessarily have any, uh, we'll just say don't make a lot of sense, that don't have any um, clear biological plausibility as to why they should be part of this clinical prediction rule. Uh, So if you look at symptoms less than 16 days, well, that's a really, really easy way to come up with a treatment that gets people better is if you say, if you've hurt them less than for less than 16 days and I do this treatment and I come back and measure you at six weeks later and you're better, it must have been because my treatment made you better, right? But with low back pain, we know that the typical course of, of an acute bout of low back pain is about six to eight weeks. And we know that about 70 or 75% of people will get a tremendous amount better within six to eight weeks. So if your symptoms have been less than 16 days, I do a manipulation or I do a mobilization or I do dry needling or I do taping or I do uh, a rain dance with a gong, uh, you know, dancing around your head. Odds are you're going to be better next time we come back to measure your symptoms. So that's my problem with that. Secondarily, as physical therapists uh, in a lot of states not having direct access and people typically going to their primary care and having to go through referral processes and all that sort of stuff, most people don't get to us uh, within 16 days of their symptom onset, you know, in a lot of different places. Uh, Unless you are one of those people who are lucky enough to have a lot of direct access and you're doing a cash-based practice, you might get these people a little bit quicker. Um, But that's a little bit of a problem with it, but that's completely different than the fact that uh, that time frame just sets you up for success. And then, um, well, internal rotation of at least 35 degrees. Well, what's the biological plausibility for having hip internal rotation of greater than 35 degrees on at least one side? Doesn't matter which side, doesn't matter how much greater, doesn't matter anything that's going on, doesn't take into account the subjectivity and the measurement error of goniometry, right? So you got a problem with this because there's no biological plausibility on this hip internal rotation on a random side of at least 35 degrees. That's just what worked out in the wash. Uh, FABQ subscale of less than 19. I like that just for, because it pulls in like how much fear avoidance is there. And it it, it kind of lends itself to uh, maybe weeding out some of the people that have high catastrophization or highly sensitive systems that they may have pain that lasts longer, right? They may be in that, that uh, cyclical uh, persistent pain uh, type of scenario where, yeah, they're probably not going to just get better if you manipulate their lumbar spine because their issues are way more complex. Uh, pain that doesn't radiate past the knee. I mean, I think that this is fine. I know that that probably came about because, uh, you know, if pain radiates past the knee, it's more likely that there is there is some sort of uh, 
neuropathic component and doing a lumbar manipulation may or may not affect that neuropathic component. And it, uh, and, and those things maybe tend to last a little bit longer, right? If you've got a, if you've got a significant disc issue, or if you've got uh, some sort of significant, you know, lumbar stenosis type issue, doing a, doing a lumbar manipulation, that's not going to fix up, you know, that, that sort of thing. And then, um, what was the other one? Oh, the the stiffness with prone PA assessment of the lumbar spine. Let's not even get into how ridiculously unreliable my subjective assessment of another person's stiffness in their lumbar spine is. The whole motion palpation concept has been thoroughly debunked because what you say is stiff, I won't say is stiff. And what I say is stiff, you won't say is stiff. And we're not even really that reliable at palpating the correct lumbar levels to assess that stiffness at. So I have a, I have a little bit of a problem with every component of this and the way in which it was designed. And, and let's not forget Tasha Stanton's work where she said that even the, the stiffness that patients perceive doesn't relate to the mechanical characteristics of stiffness in the spine. It's more of a protective inference into the, you know, a protective way your body will produce sensations in an area versus there's some that it aligns well. So again, there's just a lot that that is not really going to be reliable with motion palpation and hypomobility. I, I, I'm just, I, I wonder how hard is it? I mean, any clinician that was facing, God, I need three. I got two of these and they, they're left with hypomobility of the lumbar spine. How many clinicians that are manipulation oriented had a hard time finding a hypomobile segment? I mean, to me, it's just like you, you kind of find what you're looking for type thing with, with some of that stuff. And um, yeah, because you want to get to a treatment threshold. And again, all this stuff is motivated on great stuff. We're trying to figure out best ways to find populations of patients that might respond well to something. It, to me, it's a fruitless pursuit. You're never going to find a homogenous population of humans. You're just not going to. And it's not that there might be some characteristics we can find. But again, to me, you know, and I remember some of the clinicians who I was fortunate to get mentored with getting frustrated with like, you know, now all of a sudden research is the new guru in town because we're stripping clinical decision making and, and making studies and research to do clinical decisions. And again, I think obviously the nuanced approach is you bring these CPRs into play as one little source of information that, again, it needs to be qualified with a unique person in front of you that whether that means something to the patient. But yeah, I think you nicely laid out um, some of the issues with those factors that go into uh, CPR development and, and things. What are the things you see with like DPT students, um, maybe younger clinicians as well, like struggles with them as far as figuring out where this stuff all fits? I know you do your OCS prep course um, and different things like that, but uh, where, where do you find like the, the misconceptions or misapplications lie in, in the, the younger clinician population? You know, I, I, I feel like these clinical prediction rules and these thought processes have been driven into their head um, because they will be tested on them a lot. They'll be tested on them on their MSK tests. They'll be tested on them on the NPTE. They'll be tested on them on the OCS exam. So they are driven into their head repeatedly. Uh, and I, I find that um, a lot of times the, the students and the, these younger clinicians especially um, they start thinking in a product type of mindset, you know, and, you know, God, God love Jason Silvernail for uh, putting this thought process in my head of product, you know, process versus product. But they start thinking, oh, look, like I, uh, 
you know, I spun the Rolodex and it, it hit the algorithm just right. And it's got this clinical prediction rule. So I'm going to apply this treatment to that person. I'm going to apply it. I'm going to apply this product, apply this product. I'm going to answer this question with, you know, the, the clinical prediction rule and they get zoomed in. Right. And, and they forget about the person. They forget about system wide sensitivity. They, they forget about the interaction between the clinician and the person. They forget about the environment that the person lives in. They forget about uh, psychological factors that may be playing a role. They forget about where that person exists within their culture. And, and they are zooming in on saying, oh, this person has low back pain and they have internal rotation of 35 degrees and uh, it doesn't go past their knee. Manipulation. Why aren't you getting better? Manipulation. Why aren't you getting better? Or um, what is probably more common is manipulation. Hey, a few weeks later, this person got better. Must be because I'm a super badass, highly skilled Jedi hand trick uh, manipulator. And it's not because of other factors, right? So they, they see this pattern. It, it, it's a whole concept of uh, patternicity. And if you read any of like Michael Shermer's books on uh, human patternicity and the way that we draw connections between non-related events and then uh, use post hoc reasoning to justify them and, and decision making based on seeing these patterns where they maybe don't exist. It's just kind of what I see in, in a lot of these uh, clinical practice models because um, it, it's it's gotten to the point where you know, if things are prescriptive like that, it takes away a little bit of the really strong critical thinking and clinical reasoning process that is human-centered, person-centered, patient-centered. Yeah, uh, hard to argue with that. And I, you know, teaching in a DPT program as well, it's always, you know, because students strive for black and white. That's And that's how they're tested. They're tested on a black and white way of looking at things. And Again, I, I don't think it's bad that students are aware of these things. I think they should also be equally aware of the limitations with them, of exactly the conversations we're having here on this podcast. Is because it, it, if you come out with this, like, oh my God, the solution is here. And I honestly, I, I don't. Maybe that's an extreme way of how I perceived it, but I did feel like, man, now we got I, I, this. You know, I don't have to do the Jedi hand tricks of millimeter palpation to determine treatment thresholds anymore now i can use that and again it still can be helpful of that yeah maybe this person's you know uh, more likely to to respond to manipulation but uh, again and that's the hard thing with dpt education is you can't teach clinical reasoning paper cases do the best we can and it's nothing wrong with that and it's we need those things but until you start interacting with real humans in pain that are right there in front of you in the flesh and you start testing some of this stuff with a process, as Jared said, not just flipping the Rolodex to a product. And because that's where students struggle initially when they make their initial forays and click. I know this student did when he was in that stage is I just had, I wanted to go down the algorithms of, oh, this, if you, they fit that algorithm, they go here. And then it freaking backfired massively. They hated it. It didn't go well. They're worse next session. So <clears throat> again, being able to take these CPRs for what they are, you know, they're not anything amazingly special. They might give us some thoughts of maybe populations that are going to respond to a multitude of interventions. I think it was Shank uh, and colleagues that did some studies that looked at a lot of the, the manipulation CPR equally respond well to specific exercise. And there's um, other studies that have been done that show that it's not unique, that manipulation is the only thing that these folks are going to respond to. Um, but again, it just gives you some information for a patient that can get, lend you to think, okay, maybe this treatment's on the table. But then again, it becomes like the the dialogue with the patient. Does it? Is it something, what are your thoughts on us trying this? A quick stretch, going to give you a pop, hopefully going to, um, you know, it's, it's basically his job is to give you some pain relief and, and improve movement. 
tends to be temporary unless we teach you some things to get you know off that table and moving well so i want to teach you some things but what are your thoughts on that and if and absolutely no i had a horrible experience with the last pt who did that or um yeah absolutely you know again depending on where the patient's at but again it qualifies to that person in front of you other things i would just add on to what you said is just the equipoise of uh, you know, the personal equipoise of clinician. Like if you live in a world where you have letters that are like, look at my manipulation things and you're cranking out videos of this amazing, I'd still get frustrated with those videos of like people on Instagram and stuff of like, look at this amazingly executed manipulation. And there's just like this, you know, paternalistic, you know, guruism to the video of look at how amazing this is. I just, it, it, it's off putting to me. I understand the thoughts behind it. We need to be good technically. It's just, the 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 like ugh, i don't even know how to even say it just but just like the the way we still are so freaking enamored and we just like puff our chests up and like want high fives after we manipulate people is just to me is like when are we going to get over it like it's same thing with needling i don't have anything against i and i have a lot of colleagues that do uh, both needling manip but who freaking like let's get people off tables when are we going to realize that just you know manipulate you know modulating symptoms on tables just isn't the isn't doing it for our patients it isn't but and I'm gonna go. Okay, let's get our anecdotal stories. Well, this did it worked for this patient where nothing else worked. Sure, yeah, you created a context where that situation it worked great. What did they do off the table? Okay, good. You know, but anyway, um, I think sometimes we just search for justification for our you know our biased approach, and that's where why don't we use a nuanced approach where we fit things to patients and not fit patients to us? I just think as you've rec- as you've pointed out, we risk a lot of biased approaches when we try to just build a mountain of research to support our worldview and cprs can build that mountain for you it's and again if you look at the studies that say how well are they validated how well is it what are these impact analyses that should be that final step what are we looking at it becomes a big there's not much going on that they're really adding amazing you know again helpful things that we've learned and and things but it's just time to move on time to move on to to, again i think person-centered care is uh, you know humanity's bringing all that stuff into things um and then also still being able to skillfully add those techniques without the ridiculous complexity that some of this manipulation stuff goes to like you gotta you know do level 14 of a manual therapy curriculum to be able to kiss the ring of some guru who's saying that you've now been knighted the knight of manual therapy that's ridiculous and i think you can be in a weekend course you can get good at manip if you get some good instruction and there's a lot of people that are doing it our friends at ice do it there's other folks that are doing great on the manipulation education but just again learn it and let's and then it's a part of the process possibly but i think we have to recognize it's just not solving the problem and it's not going to there's not one intervention i just think it's we got better things we can look at and focus bigger picture with patients but anyway that's that's uh, my thoughts jared what about you no man i i, I think we've covered it i i don't want to i don't want to beat the cpr horse right to to death too much um but you know it's just uh it, it's it's a uh, it's having a framework, right? It's understanding that that care with the patient is dynamic, and every one will be different. And that's that's you know what we're trying to get across. And you know, you and I work in this world where we teach at a university level, and we we teach in specialization uh, programs. And it, it's difficult to walk in that because everybody wants black and white. But you know, that's also why we created modern pain care and the complete clinician supercharged program is so we can actually spend time with 
people over a long course of time, over several months, working with them in their practice and helping them see the, the, the gray instead of the black and white, helping them have a framework and a reasoning process that they can uh, actually apply in clinic and morph themselves and their interaction to that particular patient at that particular time and get feedback all along the way in you know small group discussions and direct one-on-one -on -one mentorship calls and, and that sort of thing just because learning takes time and learning is a process as well it's not just a product that you go buy on a weekend course it's this thing that takes active engagement and then it takes reflection and then it takes correction and then more active engagement and then more reflection and feedback right it, it's it's almost like patient care where it's not just this product, it's this process. And it takes complex nuance, small adjustments and changes and feedback and, and shared decision-making. Yeah, and as Jared said, that's the whole point behind the program we created with the Complete Clinician Supercharged. So check it out at modernpaincare.com slash supercharged. And you can see if it might be something that would be worth you and worth it in your practice. Because again, if you want to learn to develop the process, if you want to learn to when does the CPR fit for a patient, when does manipulation work for that person that day, do you want to learn in your clinic? Because stripping yourself out of the context of your clinic, going to a weekend course, getting your tires pumped up about all these techniques, and then having to figure out how does it fit to the unique person in front of you. That's the classroom we're trying to create with this coaching program is where you struggle applying it in real time with the people that are having problems in your practice. Or why didn't this CPR work? Why didn't it fit for this patient? They were classic. They had all five of the five, yet it sucked. They were worse afterwards. Why? What did I do wrong? What could I have done better to apply a, a more nuanced approach to doing it versus a, um, a research clinician biased approach of patient care? And that's what we're, we teach. And if you want to check it out, check it out um, on that uh, webpage and we'll, we'll, we can have a conversation, see if it's a good fit for you. But I think um, you know, getting folks on a path to start learning a process. And thanks to Jason Silvernail and others who've, who've given us the, the kind of kicked us in the butt to start thinking bigger picture and, and, and looking at patient care to the breadth of what it truly is and not getting so enamored with the latest shiny intervention that's popular in our profession. Nothing wrong with bringing in new interventions. I think there's, we have no issues with that. And we'd encourage, you know, the continued pursuit of ways that can better help people in pain. But um, we're pretty sure that there's been a lot of time where a lot of interventions have come and gone and nothing's really jumping out to the forefront is amazingly special. But, you know, that's why you got to learn to a process to figure out what tools work for that patient that day. Um, so, yeah, we'll finish our episode with that. Hopefully you found some value in it. Hopefully my blood pressure is coming back down from getting all fired up about CPRs. I don't necessarily. I know I'm going to get probably... People are going to listen to this and think, oh, God, here's cards with the manual therapy. No, I think manual therapy has just gotten led astray with some of the, you know, pushes towards one biased way of looking at human beings through, you know, having to manipulate it through passive movement approaches. can be one strategy. Just I think we need to do better and look bigger picture on people and tunnel vision on any intervention, be it manual therapy, exercise, or whatever. So anyway, hopefully that was valuable to you guys. Uh, we'll be talking to you at the next episode. If you have any questions, concerns, uh, remarks that you want to send to Jared and I, hopefully not hateful in nature, just feel free to reach out to us on social media and we will talk to you next time.
This has been another episode of the Modern Pain Podcast with Dr. Mark Karchula. Join us next time as we continue our journey to help change the story around pain. For more information on the show, visit modernpaincare.com. Also, visit the Pain Masterminds Network on Facebook for free education and resources. This podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for medical advice or treatment. Please consult a licensed professional for your specific medical needs. Changing the story around pain. This is the Modern Pain Podcast.